0: Um, okay, so we're going to read Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 10, where we, left, where we uh, heard about last week, and we're going to read verse 10 through verse 18. So follow along with me in your scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. What did he do? He made both groups one. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He abolished in his flesh the hostility, which is the law of commandments and ordinances so that in himself, he might make the two into one new man, so making peace, verse 16, and he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near, for through him, verse 18, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Well, that's immediately clear as mud, right? Let's, uh, let's pray. We know that Jesus is the best uh, teacher and interpreter of scripture. So let's pray and let's ask him to teach us this morning from his word. Father, we love you so much. We are thankful that your word is alive. I pray right now that you would open our eyes that we might see, open our ears that we might hear, open our hearts that we might understand and believe your gospel, your good news we're so grateful for who, who you are and what you have done for us. We pray all these things. We devote this hour to you. We pray all this in your son's name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Okay, put on your uh, time travel history hats for a second and go back with me to uh, 1867. 1867, late 1800s. And there's this guy, there's this father and son duo in Germany named Friedrich von Bodelschwing. There's a picture of them for proof that I didn't make up their last name, Friedrich von Bodelschwing. And uh, Friedrich Sr. is the older guy and Friedrich Jr. is the younger guy. And Friedrich Sr. was a doctor and he cared for um, specifically patients with epilepsy, and as he, he was also a Christian, they were both Christ followers. And as he was um, becoming more and more um, um, veteran in his practice, he started to care for them and he wanted to educate them on their, their um, physical ailments and disabilities. And so he kind of started this thing called the Bethel Foundation. And the Bethel Foundation was primarily a, a place for caring for people with epi- epilepsy, patients with epilepsy. Then more and more patients started coming, and this is again, late 1800s, early 1900s in Germany. And then they kind of branched out to people with different physical ailments and different uh, physical disabilities. And then they started growing more, and it was a care center, there was a hospital, there were classes to educate people on different um, uh, ailments and disabilities they had. And then eventually it opened up and it wasn't just physical disabilities, it was also a place and a care center for mental and physical disabilities. By 1910, 15-ish, Um, Friedrich Jr. had taken over for his father because his father had passed away because he looked super old. And uh, by 1910, there were about 2,000 patients with mental and physical disabilities and ailments. There were schools at the Bethel Foundation. There was hospitals. There were markets where people could trade. There were houses uh, for staff and for nurses who lived on site. It was like an entire city just 40 years after it had started. And remember, this is uh, early 1900s in the middle of Germany. And for those of you who are, are thinking your antennas are going off, what else is happening in the early 1900s in the middle of Germany? Right, Hitler is rising to power. And he's rising to power through, through some of the most egregious, awful, hateful, hideous ways. He, he's rising to power and he starts this, this Nazi movement, this Nazi worldview by basically saying there's a, there's a small group of people who are better, who are in, who are more evolved, more advanced, more sophisticated, the ideal human. There's a small group of people who are that and everybody else is less than. Everybody else is worse. Everybody else is less than and in fact, they need to be killed. Most famously, the Jews in the Holocaust were killed, but also a little less known is that there were hundreds of thousands of people with mental and physical disabilities who were killed in the Holocaust by what the Nazis called mercy killings. And in the middle of this worldview that elevated power and and told everybody else that they were less than and killed them lived this tiny little community called the Bethel Foundation that defied and rebelled against everything Nazi Germany stood for. It wasn't this place of I'm gonna lift myself up and be better than, it was this place of selflessness, of peace, of love, of giving of the self to the other. Friedrich Jr. was friends with another uh, famous German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe you've heard of him. And there's a biography on Bonhoeffer, and it's a great biography. If you have time to read a 600-page book, read the biography on Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer went to the Bethel Foundation in the midst of uh, this, this, uh, the beginnings of World War II. And this is a quote from the um, biography, and it says this about the Bethel Foundation. It says, it, the Bethel Foundation, was the antithesis, the exact opposite of the Nazi, the Nietzschean worldview, that exalted power and strength. It, the Bethel Foundation, was the gospel made visible. It was a fairy tale landscape of grace. It was unbelievable. Where the weak and the helpless were cared for in a palpably Christian atmosphere. In the midst of a culture and a society that dominated uh, based on other people's uh, weaknesses, exploited their differences, and then murdered them, this little Bethel Foundation was a fairy tale landscape of grace. I love that phrase. It was unbelievable. And that reality, that fairy tale landscape of grace, that almost unbelievable reality of people giving of themselves to the other is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 2 is true of us who are in Christ. In Christ, there, there is no domination of the, of the other for the benefit of the self. It's a fairy tale landscape of grace. So let's look at verse 11 and 12. Let's go to the text and have Paul tell us himself about this. So I have verse 11 up here. Let's read, I'm going to read uh, verse 11 again and then we'll we'll look at it. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision performed in the flesh by human hands. Ah, now I see why Todd wanted me to preach this message. Therefore, whenever you see therefore, you don't need to go to seminary to understand this. Whenever you see therefore, I was always taught, you always ask, what is therefore? Therefore, yes, exactly. Thank you. What is therefore, therefore? Therefore, Paul is continuing his flow of thought. He just spent 10 verses talking about how you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God intervened. He is rich in mercy, and He made us alive in Christ. We are raised with Christ. We are seated with Christ. We are created in Christ for good works, right? And now he's saying, therefore, he's continuing his th- flow of thought. Because of all this stuff, remember, Remember, this is the first command in the entire book of Ephesians, and there's not another one until chapter four. Remember, that's interesting. I would think that as soon as Paul was done articulating the gospel, he would say, okay, you were dead, God intervened, he saved you, and now you're alive. Now, therefore, do this and walk this way. And wives love your husbands, husbands love your wives, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Put on the full armor of God. Do these, this, that, and the other. Do all of these things. And he does get there eventually, chapters four, five, and six. But his first command is remember. So naturally we have to ask, who is he talking to? And what does he want us to remember? This is where it gets fun. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision performed in the flesh by human hands. Okay, so one thing that is really tricky is if you're familiar with church, you can start, reading, you can start to read passages like this and your eyes kind of glaze over because you're like, oh yeah, I know what that means. I know what, this is Gentiles, circumcision, justification, whatever. Um, this is really important to understand what Paul means when he says Gentiles. He can mean one of two things. He can mean one, a pagan, can you read that? Yes, perfect. He can mean one, like a pagan, like a heathen, uh, a non Christian. Later in the book, he says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk, basically saying, don't walk like an unbeliever, right? He can also mean two, a non Jewish Christian. A non Jewish Christian. Um, Circumcision was the external representation of who was in God's family and who was outside of God's family, right? Genesis 17, if you remember, Genesis 12, God chose Abraham. Genesis 15, he gave him a promise. Genesis 17, he said, this is the sign of the promise. He basically says, look, Abraham, I made Adam and Eve. Humans and God were supposed to partner together. Sin broke that relationship. I tried again with Noah and a flood. That didn't work because the Tower of Babel super messed up. I'm gonna partner with you. This is the Parker McGoldrick abridged translation. I'm gonna park, I'm gonna parker. I'm gonna partner with you, Abraham, and through you, I'm going to restore, and your family and your seed and your offspring, I'm going to restore that relationship with man and with God. And the sign that people will know that you and I have a relationship, Abraham and God have a relationship, is circumcision. So on the eighth day, circumcise all your Male babies. And so what was supposed to be a blessing, what was supposed to be a representation of God and man's partnership ended up resulting in hostility. It resulted in hostility between God and man and it resulted in hostility between man and man. Because the Jews, we know from reading the Old Testament, the Jews, they took advantage of their status with God. They're like, oh, I'm circumcised? That means I'm in God's family. So now I can worship whatever God I want. I can make a golden calf. Now I can do what all the other nations are doing. They have a king, we don't have a king, I really want a king, so let's do this. Uh, Now we can do all of these these wicked and sinful practices because I'm circumcised, so like I'm in God's family. There was hostility between God and man. It also brought about hostility between man and man on a, a horizontal relationship because we see this especially in the New Testament with the Pharisees. They were like, oh, I'm better than you, I'm great, I'm in, and you're out. They literally built walls that were extra walls outside the temple to say, if you're unclean or if you're not a Jew or if you're not circumcised, get out. They mocked, they elevated themselves to the detriment and to the um, um, destruction of others. So Paul is talking to people who are now saying, okay, circumcision or uncircumcision, it doesn't matter because Jesus broke that barrier. So the context of, of the church in Ephesus is that there are some Jews who are saying, okay, wait, Paul, so I, I was always taught growing up that if you're circumcised, you're in God's family, and if you're not, you're not. But now my buddy who goes to school in Antioch or Rome or whatever, he's a pagan, he is not in, he's not Jewish, but he also claims to follow the same God. This is the struggle, the hostility between the two groups of people that Paul is addressing here. So right now, he's addressing non-Jewish Christians, Therefore remember, first command, you, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision performed in the flesh by human hands. Side note, there's a, a quick jab to Jewish people who elevated their status because they were circumcised. Because if you read Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Ezekiel, you know that true circumcision is on the heart by the spirit, not on the flesh by the human hands. So even though he's talking to Gentiles, he's he's kind of taking a jab at people who who said they were first-tier Christians because they were circumcised. Verse 12, this is what we're supposed to remember. Remember that at that time, you were separated from Christ. This Messiah, this promised seed of Abraham, you had nothing to do with. You were out. Remember that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, the city of Israel. Israel and God had a special relationship. You had nothing to do with it. You were a foreigner, you were a stranger, you were outside. You you wouldn't know what it was if it hit you. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. God promised Abraham hope. Isaac hope, Jacob hope, Moses hope, David hope. You were, were strangers to that. You had no idea what it was. You had no hope and were without God in the world. Paul wants us to remember that. The first command in the entire book is remember how you were separated from Christ, you were alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel, you were strangers, you had no hope, you were without God, it's a bleak picture. I, uh, I recently got engaged, and thank you. <laughs> thank you. You guys don't have to clap. Uh, I mean, if you want to, that's great. Uh, anyway, I recently just got engaged, and having graduated from seminary a year ago, I was frantically figuring out a way how to pay for a ring, and after I had finally collected enough pop cans to deposit to hy V, you laugh, but it was, it was painfully real, Um <laughs> I started to go to jewelry stores and I started to ask, I would walk in and I would have no idea what I was doing, but I would go in there and I would say to the jeweler, I would kind of tell them the cut I was looking for, the price range I was, I was working with. Um, and as I was describing kind of what I wanted, before I would finish, they would reach under their cabinet and they would grab this black velvet cloth and they would roll it out on the glass counter. And you've been in a jeweler's. Maybe you've been in a jeweler's store before. You've been in a jeweler's store before. There's glass counters. There's lights everywhere, and everything's just super bright. And they would roll out this black velvet cloth. It was very, very dark. And then they would grab their little like tweezer things, and then they would grab a diamond, and they would set it on top of that black velvet cloth. And as soon as they did that, it, it was like the diamond became alive. Colors started to radiate off of it. It looked like there was a light inside the diamond. Every head turned and looked at it because if it's just in the case next to all the other diamonds in light, if everything is a diamond, nothing is in diamond. But what they would do is they would roll out that black velvet cloth in the backdrop of that deep darkness, made the diamond infinitely more beautiful. Paul's first command in the book of Ephesians is lay out the black velvet cloth. Remember what you were before Christ. Remember you were separated, aliens, strangers, hopeless, without God. Because when you do that, that diamond, the beauty of Christ, the gospel, it just sings. Verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, i.e. Gentiles, uncircumcised, strangers, foreigners of the covenant of the promises, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Does this sound familiar? You were strangers, but Christ intervened, and now the two are made one. You are brought near. What have you been talking about the last two weeks? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse two, verse four, but God intervened because of his great mercy and the love with, with he loved us, and now you are made alive, you are raised up, you are seated, you are created in Christ Jesus. Paul just spent 10 verses talking about our hostility and our vertical relationship and how in Christ that is made whole, and now he is switching it, he is shifting it to show how our horizontal relationships were hostile, but now in Christ, they are made whole. The gospel is not only reconciliation, peace, wholeness with our relationship with God, it is also reconciliation, peace, wholeness with our relationships with others, We have peace. Verse 14, underline this first phrase, for he himself is our peace. What did he do? He made both groups, two separate groups, opposite groups, into one. There was a a barrier, there was a dividing wall, he broke it down. He abolished in his flesh the hostility, the law, the commandments, the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two opposites two separate entities into one new man, so making peace. He might reconcile them both in one body, both, two, opposite, in one body, his body, to God through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. A few things. Paul's view of what happened on the cross is very important. It's subtle, but it's very important. You see, we would say that hostility is what put Jesus on the cross. There was hostility between Jews and the Roman soldiers, between the Pharisees and the high priests and Pontius Pilate, if you think about the the crucifixion narratives. There was hostility between all these people, Jewish insurrectionists who wanted to destroy the government like uh, Peter, Jewish sellouts who worked for the Roman government, like Matthew, right? There were just all of these different camps and hostile environments, and we would say, I would say, that that hostility is what put Jesus on the cross, because it all kind of boiled up to this breaking point, and then Jesus was killed on the cross. And Paul says that the exact opposite is true. He says, you might think that Jesus died on the cross and was killed on the cross, but Jesus killed hostility on the cross and the result of that is peace look at these three phrases about peace verse 14 it says he is peace verse 15 he makes peace verse 17 he proclaims he preaches peace now peace is not um, biblical peace I should say is not uh, silence or tranquility or you know breathing in and exhaling a lot. It's not yoga or whatever. You know, um, stretching is good, but sometimes yoga gets a little weird. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> anyway, um, biblical peace is not necessarily tranquility or or silence or absent-mindedness. Biblical peace, in just one word, is wholeness. In the Old Testament, it's Often, trans- that word shalom—you guys might have heard that word shalom before. It's actually translated complete or whole more than it is translated peace. And um, in the Old Testament, there's this story of a wall being built, and literally the word peace would be used to describe it. Is that if there were a few bricks missing in the wall, it would be unpeace; it would be not peace. That's literally what they would say. Then, as soon as you would put those bricks in, and it was whole, it was complete, it was it had fulfilled its purpose, all of a sudden the wall was peace. So biblical peace is taking what is either incomplete and making it complete, broken, making it whole, and we see this because he is our peace. There were two. Now there is one, new man. There, it, there was dominion and power-hungry aspects of life, and there was, there was this this worldview of lifting up yourself and pushing down others, and now there is a fairy tale landscape of grace. There's peace. He is our peace. He made our peace. And interestingly, look at how he made our peace. He made our peace by dying on the cross and killing the hostility. And in the midst of a world that loves to point out differences, we love to point out differences, whether that be ethnic, social, economic, political, stylistic, preferential, whatever it is, in the midst of a world that loves to point out differences and then ostracize and alienate those differences and those people who have those differences, what Paul says here is that all of that is irrelevant. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no first-tier Christian, second-tier Christian, third-tier Christian. He made our peace by dying on the cross. He killed the hostility. He preaches peace to you who are far and to you who are near. Verse 17, we don't have time right now, but Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 59. This verse is is, is pulling the narratives from Isaiah 52 and 59 into that section. So if you have time this week, go read those. It's really good. Look at verse 18 with us. For... Through him, Paul sums it up. Through him, we both, both, what does both imply? Two, we both, the two groups, your horizontal relationships are now together, have access in one spirit to the father, your vertical relationship. We have this access to the father through him. The temptation now is to, uh, it's really easy to think about this in theory or in a faraway time and place, right? We love to do, and I I do this all the time, so please don't hear me yelling at anybody, but hear me in this with you. We love to take up mirrors, and as soon as a conviction or a truth that we don't want to hear or... Uh, reality or blame or condemnation comes at us. We love to pick up those mirrors and be like, oh yeah, they, they really needed that. To the extreme example, right? Oh wow, that hostility between uh, the, the, the Nazis and the Bethel Foundation, the Nazis and Jews. Wow, that was, that, that was bad. I'm glad we're not like that. You deflect it. Oh, the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. Whew, man, I'm really glad they had Paul to write them that letter. We do it to other people. Wow, I really wish so-and-so was here because they really need to hear this message. I really wish the other person that I'm probably gonna have to make peace with would hear this too. Otherwise, it's just me. And I, I ask myself and I ask all of us to put down those mirrors for, for just a second and think about these Two questions. The first is, how are you remembering? The first command in the entire letter is remember. How are you remembering? How are you laying out the black velvet cloth of our depravity? It's easy to say, oh, well, I, I, it's easy for us to think that we're the standard, right? Right? I always think I'm the standard. I'm God's people. And Paul says, you were aliens, complete strangers, foreigners. You were hopeless. How are you remembering? And maybe you guys haven't remembered before. And that's okay. Start today. How are you remembering? The second question is, how are you making peace. Jesus made peace and it cost him his life. How are you making peace? Making peace, yes, vertically, making peace with God, repenting of your sins, believing that Jesus' death on the cross was enough to pay for your debt. But also, how are you making peace vertically? Because I'm sorry, horizontally, because it is not easy. It requires us to get up, walk across the room, talk to that one person who you might have bad blood with. It requires us to pick up the phone, call that one family member that's on your mind right now, who you know is a believer, but maybe there's just hostility. Maybe there's this, this pride of like, okay, well, I'm a Christian, and I know she's kind of a Christian, but like, not really a Christian. Maybe there's this first tier, second tier, third tier mentality, and, and how are you making peace? We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.